Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Two weeks ago, I stood before you as we considered a psalm just a couple pages ahead of this, Psalm 69, very different feel and theme to that psalm. And I shared with you how Pastor Mir and I had uh, months ago discussed kind of how we would um, cover this period of time where Pastor Greco was on vacation and we um, came up with four psalms and, and we planned to, to preach those in four consecutive weeks. Um, however, as you know, that changed and things were uh, variables entered in and and the series was not presented as we thought it would, but we trust that God is glorified anytime and everywhere his word is proclaimed. I was greatly blessed last week as Pastor King brought the word from Psalm 88. And um, we see God's hand and we see his grace as his word is proclaimed. And, and we are grateful when we can feed upon God's word, even when the menu changes. God feeds us and cares for us and gives us his word. And he is doing that this morning, not because I'm a great preacher, but because his word is inspired and, and the spirit takes the word and, and imparts it to you. And, and we pray and, and, and one of the reasons we pray before we preach is that we are inviting and, and imploring the spirit to do the work that the spirit does in taking God's inspired word and applying it to the hearts of God's people, and also to the hearts of those that have not yet heard and responded to the gospel. So with that in mind, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, we need you. Holy Spirit, as you have inspired your word, we pray now that you would illuminate it to our hearts. Help us to receive it. Lord, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, may it go in cutting and come out cutting. Lord, we need it. We need your word. Please do your work among your people this morning, we ask. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth Fear him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I, I meant to point out to you before I read this a little bit of the structure of this psalm. You'll notice that verses 3 and 5 are identical. And verse 4 is a little bit longer in its phrasing. And that really points us right to the center of this psalm and verse 4 being the central focus. I want us to consider this under three headings that you have in your insert. Seeking the blessing of the king, that his way may be known. Secondly, seeking the rule of the king, that the nations might rejoice in him. And thirdly, rejoicing in the blessing of the king, that the ends of the earth might fear him. 
I want to ask you a question as we start out this morning. What would you say, you don't have to answer it aloud, but just consider it in your hearts. What would you say is God's attitude towards mankind, to this earth that he has created? Now, we know God is, is not like us. And, and, and I, I want to be careful as I consider God and how he views the earth. When God created the world, he said that it was good. And, and we know that was, of course, before the fall. But, but I, I had the opportunity this, this week to have some, some good theological conversations with, with uh, a few different people. Um, and and they, a couple of them in particular centered upon God's sovereign electing love. And the question came up, can we say that God loves everyone? Does God love everyone equally? And again, we're kind of thinking about how God sees the world. And we want to think a little bit, and, and there, there could be much said about that, and theologians, good theologians, have made distinctions on that question of God, does God love everyone, because you have to. Because you have to say that, yes, in one sense, God does love everyone. He created the world. He has shown favor to his creation. He gives us good things. He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. He gives good things to the world he's created. The theologians say that, that God has a benevolent and beneficent love for all of his creation. He loves the world. God is love, Scripture teaches us. He, he is also a God of justice, and he will judge sin. But the fact that he stays his hand from immediately judging sin is evidence of his grace, is evidence that he does love the world. For we all have sinned and fall short of his glory. We all, apart from the grace that is available through Jesus Christ, would face God's wrath and judgment, and rightly so, for we are sinners and without hope apart from his sovereign mercy. We also must recognize as we think about God's love is that he, there is this love within the Trinity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and, and the love that, that God has for the Son, the Father has for the Son, and, and therefore for all that are in the Son, that all are united by faith to Jesus Christ, is a special kind of love, and a love that is not universal like the previous love that we talked about. And that is a great mystery to us, we should, if we are in Christ, we should be in awe and wonder of the fact that God chose to save us. Because while I love each of you here, there's nothing good in you that would cause you to, to, to be worthy of the love of God that he has shown to you. And that's certainly true for me. Because we are recipients of God's grace but along with that love that he shows in, in his mercy and in calling sinners to himself comes a responsibility. There's a great mystery. There's a great privilege. And God has condescended. God has, has come down to reveal himself and to gather a people for himself. And what a blessing that is. But with that blessing comes a responsibility. And that gets us to where we start here in Psalm 67. This text invites us and compels us to pray that God's glory would be advanced to the nations. It's seeking his blessing, 
but it's seeking that his glory would be extended. God is glorified when sinners come to faith in Christ. When, and he is glorified when his ways are known and when his will is obeyed. And this text prays for God's blessing so that those things can happen. So that God's glory is extended. So that the nations hear. So that people learn of God's ways. So that they will rejoice in his justice. And that's what the psalmist is praying for here. So firstly, this psalm in the opening verses, verses 1 and 2, is point 1. Seeking the blessing of the king that his will that his way may be known. I, I hope that maybe you picked up on some echoes of other New Testament texts in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. We often hear that from this very pulpit as a benediction. That's the ironic blessing, the blessing that God gave to Moses to give to Aaron to give to the people. It kind of came through Moses to Aaron to the people. And it was God's blessing upon them. And you hear that often in a benediction. And it's a wonderful benediction. It was a priestly blessing that God gave to Moses. And, and then to Aaron and his sons to pass along to the people. And that's right near the end of, of, of number 6. If you want to look that up later. And, but there's a final verse that says this. So shall they put my name, meaning the sons of Aaron and his sons. So shall they put my name. This is God still speaking. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. He is promising to bless his people. And Psalm 67 takes that language from number six and personalizes it and makes it a prayer says, may God be gracious to us and make his face to shine on us. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase, that benediction all your life and never stopped to ponder what is a shining face. Now, I, I kind of have a, a shining head because I don't have the blessing of hair. It, it's more than just a bald head. It is, it is a face of favor. It is a, it's the opposite of a frowning face of rejection. Think of the happy reunions you see in airports. Think of how you feel when you see a loved one you haven't seen in a long time. Your face lights up. Your face shines. You, you, are, you rejoice to see that person. It, it, it implies the warmth of friendship, of love and affection. And this prayer is seeking that from the Lord. It is seeking his blessing. It is seeking his favor, his smile, his approval. Now, many people, when they seek God's blessing, they're, they're really just saying, Lord, give me more stuff. Give me, give me more of the things of this life that I think make me happy. Uh, a better job, more money, a bigger salary, a better house, those types of things. That's, I, I think material blessings are included in this prayer in Psalm 67, but it's so much more than that. It is more than, than simply stuff. It is more than material blessings. And if our idea of blessing is really just a veiled desire to be rich, we need to be reminded of Christ's words in Mark 8 where he says, For what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And as we've said, material blessings are a part of this, but a, a lesser part. And the greater part is really seeking God for who he is. 
both as our loving provider, but more importantly, our, our Lord, our Savior, our King, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and for those of us in Christ, our Father to whom we pray. And it is, it is seeking God to, to draw us near in the closeness of relationship that He has, he has built within us. We are, we are built, people of God, with, with a desire. We are, we are wired. We are hardwired to worship something. And so it is recognizing, this prayer is recognizing our need to worship the Creator God who has made us and the Redeemer God who has called us to Himself. And it is a desire to be drawn in into that closeness of relationship. The desire for true spiritual blessing must lie at the heart of all of our desires for blessing. Otherwise, our desires are vain and empty and can lead us into temptation and a snare. We are not blessed simply to heap up blessings upon ourselves, to live selfishly. The Apostle Paul warned the rich in 1 Timothy 6 not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And he goes on with specific instructions to those who are rich. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Really, that seems like a practical application of what the psalmist is praying here as we continue to unpack this. This prayer in verse 1 is seeking the true favor of God, His always adequate and often abundant material blessings, but more importantly, it's all of His blessings, the closeness of relationship with Him. Knowledge of his word and his ways, his peace, his protection, his comfort, the knowledge of sins forgiven and being part of his family. That is true blessing. And that's what we're called to, to seek. But why? Why do we seek it? Well, look at verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth. If, if you're writing notes, write T-H-A-T in all caps. That your way may be known. Why are we to seek God's blessing? That His ways are known. That His glory is, is, is spread abroad. John Piper has said that, that missions exist because worship doesn't. And so we need to pray. This is a missionary psalm, and we'll get to, to some practical applications of this. But we need to seek that God's glory is advanced and that more and more people come to know Him. So that God's ways are known. Now, again, there's echoes of a previous uh, verse in Scripture from Genesis 12. Notice how closely this aligns with Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and God's call to Abraham, where he said, he, he called him from his country and from his kindred, and he said, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Hear the echo in that? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's both a command and a promise there to, in the Abrahamic covenant, in those words that God promised to, to Abraham, that it was a command to Abraham, to his descendants, the Israelites, that they were blessed to be a blessing to the nations around them. But there's a promise as well. There's a promise that, that God will use them, the people of God, to be a blessing to the nations. 
And if you read the book of Acts, you see that fulfilled, that, that initially fulfilled. We read in Acts 2 of Peter preaching to the multitudes and 3,000 coming to faith. Men from, from all kinds of nations around Israel at that time, they heard the gospel in their own tongue and they received and believed in Jesus Christ. Peter even references the promises made to Abraham in, in another sermon in chapter 3. It's rather an impromptu sermon where after he, Peter and John had healed the lame man, he, he was just expounding scripture to, to those in his hearing, primarily a Jewish audience. And he said, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He goes on, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. We see the blessing of the Abrahamic, the promise God made to Abraham fulfilled there. But it wasn't completely fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. It wasn't completely fulfilled in the book of Acts. There's still work to be done. There's still nations. There's still people groups that have not heard the gospel. So there's still work to be done. What does he pray? He says that your way may be known on earth. What does that phrase, the way of God, mean? Well, let's look at various places in scripture, just a few, particularly from the Psalms where that is used. The psalmist in Psalm 25 prays, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. David said in Psalm 51, in that great prayer of confession, he said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And in Psalm 119, the psalmist prays, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Proverbs uses it in relation to us and says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your ways, your, make straight your paths. So we can, we can, we can consider these usages in, in just a couple, uh, a few places in Scripture. And we, we have to think about our ways and God's ways in relation to us. It's, it's our actions. It's our way of life. It's, it's our activity. It's our thoughts. And similarly, we should see God's ways as his actions. His activities, his attributes, his dealings with mankind are all, we, we could say more than that, but we have to think about it a little bit to think about the ways of God. And here the psalmist is praying and recognizing Israel's particular calling and ability to make God's ways known. And this applies to us today as new covenant believers, as adopted, grafted in children of Abraham, we share that responsibility and that ability. How are God's ways known? Well, God has revealed himself in his word. He shows us, he teaches us about himself in the Bible. So as God's word is proclaimed, his ways are made known. As, as you read the Bible, and I trust that you, you do your best to make that a daily practice as you read God's word, you are learning of God's ways. As you meditate upon the scriptures, you are meditating upon the ways of God. You are understanding how God has worked through redemptive history in his people to call a people to himself. 
your learning of God's ways. And the psalm goes on, praying that God's saving power would be known among the nations, among all nations, it says in verse 2. Well, we know that God is a God of salvation. The name Jesus points to salvation. Joseph was told by the angel that you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We serve a God of, of saving power, but how are the nations to see that saving power? Well, it's seen in the lives where God has saved people, where God has worked that saving power in the hearts and lives of his people. And we proclaim that as we live our lives faithfully before others. And if you know God's saving power, I challenge you, talk about it with others. We seek the blessing of King Jesus so that his saving power is known among the nation and so that his ways are known on the earth. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, the psalm calls us to seek the rule of the king that the nations might rejoice in him. As we've said, verse 4 is, is centrally located geographically in the psalm, but it also gives us the central theme of the psalm. It's bracketed, as we've said, by identical verses in verses 3 and 5, which read, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It seems as though the psalmist is bursting forth in praise to God and in a desire to see all of the peoples praising God. He's recalled God's covenant with Abraham, as we said in verse 2, and he's praying that the nations would hear and that the nations would rejoice that they would be glad and sing for joy. Now, we think we know what the nations are. A nation, in, in, typically in our way of thinking, is, is a geographical place on a map with boundaries that we can trace out with our finger on a, on a globe. It's, it's those, we think, that have their own government, maybe their own army, their own culture, maybe their own language. But another word that's sometimes used in Scripture, where this word um, that's translated here as nations, where it appears in the Hebrew, is people. And I think we could safely say people group. In John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, the title, of course, comes from this verse that we're considering before us, verse 4 of Psalm 67. He deals with the question, and he, he asks... Should we be concerned about only reaching as many individuals as possible, or should we focus on people groups? Missiologists have defined people groups as thus a significantly large grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of their shared language, religion, ethnicity, residence, occupation, class, situation, etc., there's more. I, won't, I will spare you the details of that technical definition. Basically, it's a people that identify with one another because of their culture, their language, their, the, the things that make them who they are. And, and Piper lays out in that book, and again, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not here just to plug that book, but he, he gives strong biblical evidence to point to the fact that we are to seek the salvation and the evangelization of people groups that we're not just called to evangelize individuals, as many as possible, but that we are called to take the gospel to as many people groups as we can. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean don't share the gospel with your neighbor. 
That doesn't mean you can't live out a life of godliness before your co-workers and pray for their salvation. You should. I hope you do. But I think as we think about the nations here in Psalm 67, we need to think about people groups. We need to think about those that have not yet heard the gospel. We need to think about those that there are... I meant to look up statistics, but, but you can look up statistics. There are many, many people groups that do not have the, the scriptures in their own language. I think it still numbers within the thousands. Here we are in 2022, and there's still thousands, not of people, but of people groups that don't have the gospel in their language. Folks, we need to pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers in his harvest fields that are white unto harvest so that these people can hear that the nations will be glad, that the nations will sing for joy, that they will rejoice in God's justice, that they will learn of his ways. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The Apostle Paul, of course, had a keen desire to see the gospel go forth. He planted churches all around the Mediterranean. But we read at the end of Romans there in Romans 15, he was not content with what had happened. He said, I want to take the gospel to those that haven't heard. I want to go to Spain. And it seems that he was thinking that Rome would be a launching point for ministry to regions beyond, to people that had not yet heard. Now, we don't know from Scripture. Some people think he may have made it to Spain. We don't know. The point is, that was his desire. That was even his intention to go in that. But there's a bit of irony in verse 4. If you'll notice, the psalmist notes two aspects of God's rule that typically pagan nations and pagan individuals hate. And that is God's justice and God's rule and sovereignty. Maybe you've had conversations with unbelievers and, and you've spoken of God's justice and they've, they, they, they seem to have a, a hatred for God because they think either God has not judged somebody that deserves judgment or maybe God has judged someone too harshly that should have received, at least in their mind, received mercy. But the psalmist is praising God that he is a God who judges rightly with equity. And he rejoices in God's rule and guidance of his people. And the only way an unbelieving person or an unbelieving nation will ever rejoice in God's justice and sovereign rule is if they bow the knee to King Jesus. And I think, I think we as believers have to recognize that. And it's only when they submit to him as their Lord and Savior that they can know God in such a way as to rejoice in these attributes that are part of who God is. How can they may be made glad? It's only as they come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's only as they embrace the gospel of Jesus. Romans 16, and again, drawing from the, the end of this glorious book of, of God's salvation and how he has called a people and how he has worked in a people to bring them to himself. In the, in the closing verses of Romans 16, the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel being preached according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for a long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Here he's seen not... 
the complete fulfillment of the gospel spread to all nations. But I think he is saying there is a gospel hope. There is a hope that the gospel would go forth to all of the nations. Lord, may the nations be glad and sing for joy. Finally, and more briefly, let us look at the final two verses and consider our third point. Rejoicing in the blessing of the king that the ends of the earth might fear him. Verse 16 says, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. It seems to have a, an agrarian emphasis. It's, 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 like a, it's like a Hebrew farmer is looking out over his fields that has been harvested and, and rejoicing in God's blessing, knowing that, that the grain, that the crops are safe in the barn. I've never been a, a full-time farmer. I've had a chance to play around with it a little bit. As a kid, I helped my grandpa haul hay, and I remember the satisfaction of, of that job being done and the hay being in the barn. For me, it was the, the eagerness to get some air conditioning and a cold Coke. But for him, I think it was the knowledge that, that it was safe in the barn, that it was safe and, and hopefully could profit him in the future. But given the theme of this psalm, it seems that there's a satisfaction and a trust in God based upon the blessing of the crops. But again, there's more. It's for God's glory and that the ends of the earth might fear him, it says in that final verse. It's as though that farmer is saying, Lord, you've blessed the ground, you've blessed the harvest. Lord, would you now somehow use this for your glory? Could somehow this little harvest that you have given me help others fear you? Could the nation somehow learn to fear you through the blessing that you have given to me? Now, Psalm 36 reminds us that there is no fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. The, the, the fear of the Lord, I, I hope that you kind of have some idea of what that means. I think that's a little, little bit of a difficult concept to, to, to wrap our minds around. I, I trust that we consider ourselves God-fearing people. To fear the Lord is to have a high and exalted view of God. It's to stand in awe of Him and His wisdom, power, Justice, mercy, and majesty. It's, it's to obey him. It's to value what God values. It's to hate what God hates. It's to love what he loves. It's a teachable humility. It's a turning away from sin. It's, in short, it is trusting and obeying God. It is believing God's word. As we said, Psalm 36 tells us that there is no fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. So once again, how can the nations fear him unless they hear the gospel, unless it is taken to him, to them. And that really brings us to the practical application of this text. We must proclaim Christ to the nations so that they might know God, so that they might fear God, and so that they might rejoice in him. That they would be glad and sing for joy, as it says in verse 4. But how will they hear? Romans 10 tells us, how then, ask the question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him that they have whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. They have to hear the gospel. They have to have the gospel proclaimed to them. And we must proclaim Christ to the nations. Piper writes in his book that I just mentioned that our desire for the supremacy of God in all things should fuel our zeal for missions. He 
Piper, if you've read any of John Piper, you know he is passionate about the supremacy of Christ and about delighting in God, and that should fuel our desire for missions. But he goes on, he says, it's not just that, it should also be a compassion for perishing ones, for the lost, for people that, that are in the shape that we were in had not Christ called us to himself. God, give us a passion for the lost. Give us a burning passion for those that, that have not responded to the gospel. If we are God-fearing people, we should have a compassion for those who do not fear him. For we know there's no hope for the sinner apart from Christ. And let me just say to you here this morning, if you are here and have not yet responded in faith and repentance to the gospel call, there is grace in Christ. We proclaim Christ crucified, Christ the Savior of sinners. Come to Christ today. For those of us that, that know Christ, that, that have received the blessing, it is so that the nations may hear, so that God's ways may be known, His saving power among the nations. It is more than the fear of hell that should compel us to herald the gospel. It is also to tell others about the glorious Savior and the, that He can be their greatest treasure if they will simply yield to Him. So as we close, I want to get personal. I want to, I want to bring some application to this. I want to press this upon your hearts because we are not saved. We are not blessed just to heap up blessings to ourselves. We are saved to herald the gospel. We are saved to do something else with it. God has called us to things. What can we do? Well, certainly everybody in here can pray. Praying is something that the Christian is called to do. And we can and should, every single person in here that, that claims Christ as their Savior can and should pray for missions, should pray for the spread of the gospel among people groups represented around us. Look around you. You don't have to physically right now. But as you exit the sanctuary, notice the blessing that we have right here in this room right now of the nations coming here. We live in Katy, Texas. We live in Houston metro area. The nations are here. And I challenge you, get to know your neighbors. Get to know the people you're sitting next to or in the row behind or in front of here at church to, to understand what it's like to be from another culture. Consider the work of the ESL ministry on Thursday nights. And people come in our doors on Thursday night that, that know very little English and they're received with love and grace. And we seek to provide a place where they can learn English, but also where they can hear the gospel. Pray for that ministry. I challenge you. Be a part of it if you're able. Pray for the salvation of your neighbors. I want to challenge you, saints of Christ Church. Let's pray together for adult baptisms. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we had a string of people up here that had responded to the gospel call as adults receiving the sacrament of baptism? Well, I've seen that a few times in my time here. What a blessing that is. What a glorious testimony that is. Let's pray that that happens more. I challenge you also to pray for the nation of Israel. The, it, it is through the Jewish people that God has worked and, and we as Gentile converts are grafted into that, to that tree. 
And we should pray that God would, would be merciful to the people of Israel, that they would understand that the Messiah has come, that they would hear and receive the gospel. We can and should pray, and I know that many of you do pray for our current missionaries, but beyond just simply praying for them, and, and we feature them week by week in our, in our prayer bulletin, but beyond that, learn about their culture. Maybe sign up for their, for their newsletters. Learn about where they serve and, and pray particularly for them. Look at the map on the wall. It's, it's a huge map. I hope you've spent some time pondering it and, and, and considering and, and noticing our missionaries there. Their prayer cards are right out here on your right as you exit the sanctuary. You can pick those up. You can put them in your Bible. You can pray for them. You can clutter up your refrigerator with them. You can, you can see them as you walk past, as you, as you fix yourself a sandwich. You can be praying for our missionaries. Keep these gospel servants and their families before you and in your prayers. I, I, I made a plug for this at our mission conference, and I put some more of those out there this morning. This is a little prayer guide for knowing how to pray effectively and particularly for the missionaries. Take one of those and consider how to pray more and more particularly. I challenge you this morning, pray for other missionaries not supported by our church. We, we don't support as many missionaries as we wish we could. We do try to support them at a level that is significant, that allows us to have a, 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 a serious vested interest in their ministry. And we try to, to, as part of that, make sure that we communicate. Your missions committee works hard to communicate with our missionaries and understand their needs and pray for them effectively. But I know there's people here in this congregation that have supported other missionaries and had a personal relationship with them and supported them for years and been part of their ministry as, 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 as soldiers on the home front, in a, in a sense, supporting those that are on the front lines of gospel ministry. Pray for more resources so that we can support more missionaries. Everyone can pray. You can give. It takes money to support missionaries. We, we support a missionary in Japan, which is very expensive. Uh, one, of our, one of our own young people are there on a short-term mission. It, it takes money to support missions. But God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he uses you and me to support missionaries. And if you give to Christ Church, as we've already said, we give to missions. We have missionaries that we support. You are supporting missions if you give to Christ Church. But everyone can give. But let me ask you this. Does your spending record, does your budget, does your bank account, does your check register, however you keep track of what you spend, does it reflect your passion for the nations? Does it reflect God's passion, which I think we see here in Psalm 67. We saw it in, in Genesis 12. We, we see it certainly in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Does your spending reflect God's passion for the nations? Finally, let me say this. Some of us can go. Everyone can pray. Most of us can give at least a small part. And a few of us can and should go. Now, there's mission opportunities, and this is not a mission conference, but i got to say this. We've had short-term mission trips. I know many of you have participated in that. Some of you have led those groups. I rejoice in that. If you can and are able, participate in that way. If you can't, help those that are going. But I also want to say, God may be calling some of you in this very room 
in this very moment to long-term service to take the gospel to the nations. And I pray that he is. I pray that God would raise up maybe just two or three among us. I, I look out across this sanctuary and I see young people whose lives are before them. Maybe God is calling you to train yourself, to equip yourself in the next few years that maybe you would be one that would take the gospel to the nations. Maybe you would be one that would learn a language that, that maybe isn't even written right now. That you could learn that language, that you could understand it, and you, that you could, could translate the Bible into the language where a whole people group would then know and receive the gospel. I see older folks. I see folks that are approaching retirement. I think of, of Tim Hoke, who will be with us next Sunday evening. And, and I love that man and his wife and, and their testimony of how God is using them, even in their later years, when, when many people would be sitting by the pool sipping a sweet tea. They're out there going back and forth to Africa, training up young people there in, at African Bible University. Maybe God is calling some of our older folks to serve in a similar way. I don't know, but I ask that you pray. Even, even though that's a scary prayer to pray, even though it's, it's, it's kind of audacious, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy. But you know what? We need to pray bold prayers. We need to pray that God will raise up and send laborers into the harvest field. So I ask you, what is God calling you to do? I want to call your attention to the front of your order of worship. You don't have to look at it. You've heard it a lot of times from, from this pulpit. You've heard it from our elders, what our mission statement is. It says, Christ's church exists to make mature disciples who will worship, know, and serve Christ. But it doesn't end there. And I love the fact that it has those words, so that. We're not just called to worship and serve Christ so we can feel good about ourselves. And, and, and yes, we do enjoy God's blessing. We seek God's blessing in Psalm 67. But it's so that his church and his kingdom are powerfully extended in Katy and beyond. We want to take the gospel to the nations. We want to see the gospel spread to those around us. So how is God calling you to participate in his nation, his mission, so that the nations will be made glad. Let us pray.